I'm Joanne Wilson, and this is Positively Gotham Gal, meaningful conversations with women entrepreneurs about their approach to life, business, and everything in between. Daniela Perdomo is the founder and CEO of Gotenna, a peer-to-peer communication device which is advancing universal access to connectivity by decentralizing it. Gotenna's mesh networks are used by consumers as well as the UN, Google, FEMA, the French Army, U.S. Special Operations and Forces, and of course, the city of New York. Danielle and I had much to discuss, including her upbringing in Brazil, her transition from community organizer to entrepreneur, and how her experience as a New Yorker during Hurricane Sandy led her to develop Gotenna's groundbreaking technology. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Brazil. So uh, my family is from all over the place. Amazing. Uh, Where in Brazil? Sao Paulo. Okay. So I grew up there until I was 18. I was born in, of all places, South Dakota. My dad was transferred there. Wow. He worked for a multinational. He's an engineer, but became a business person. Um, And he and my mother were transferred, like, as newlyweds to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, and that's where I was born. And were they from over? Where were they? Yeah. From? So my uh, parents both grew up in Guatemala. My oh dad. Oh my god! To end up in. Yeah. My, <laughs> yes. My dad's family is from Spain. My mom's family is from Israel and Spain. And um, and yeah. So I lived there probably I think about maybe up until I was about one year old, and then we moved to Miami. Uh, which is where I have my first memories. Yeah, well, the portal to South America. Yeah, well, it is the capital of South America, really. <laughs> um, yeah, every time I'm there, I'm like, oh, this is great. This is like being home, except with all the conveniences of the U.S. Completely. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so I lived in Miami. Then we were transferred all around um, for my dad's job, but I spent half my life in Brazil uh, until so you college. Speak Portuguese. Yeah, I speak Portuguese. If it feels like that's where I'm from, uh, but it's funny. I you don't have any of that Brazilian accent because we have really good Brazilian friends. Yeah, and the minute I hear anyone with that accent, you I'm know. like, oh, where are you from, Brazil? Totally. Same. Same here. It happens in cabs and restaurants and all the time. Completely. Yeah. No, I don't have an, uh, a Brazilian accent because I learned English before I learned Portuguese. Actually, so interesting. My first language is Spanish. That's what my parents speak at home. Um, and I learned English at school um, in like a Hebrew Montessori school, oddly enough, That's in hilarious. Miami. And but yeah, no, I consider myself Brazilian, but I'm also, I think more and more the more time I spend in the U.S. and I've been here since college, with an exception of a year abroad in Paris, um, I feel more and more American. I used to feel more like an interloper, but I feel very much like this is my country and my culture, which is odd because when I go home, I still very much feel like I'm from these other places. But um, this is a place where, you know, I've created this company. It's where, like, the family that I've chosen is Well, you're in New York. Yeah, and I'm in New York. Well, that makes a big difference. I I, I literally believe that people that come here – and by the way, I've heard this about people that go to Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. who never felt connected to anywhere. And they come here, New York, and they're like – I'm a New Yorker now. And it could be 24 hours after they've been here. You just know this is where you belong. And it's such a melting pot. Yeah. And it's very binary. I think people who love New York 
love it so much. And people who just don't get it really don't get it. Yeah, uh, completely. But I for think me, the same thing about L.A., by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't you guys spend time in L.A. now? We do spend a lot of time. And you still feel that way about it? But I grew up – I spent some of my life in L.A. and I had I always see. these contacts to L.A. So – I get LA. Yeah. You know, I didn't just show up, you know, one day and go, God, this is such a weird city. <laughs> and it is a weird city. Yeah. It but is. I love that city. Yeah. No, I, lo- I love LA too. I lived there for a year after college. At my first job out of school, I was a reporter at the LA Times. Uh, so very different. Uh, very, from, very different. From what so, I do know. what did you, what, where did you go to school? I went to Tufts uh, and I studied international relations in English. Which makes sense. They have an amazing international program. Yeah. So, I, you know, I thought I was going to, I don't know, work for the UN or do something that was going to be, you know, politically and, you know, socially minded. Nothing with technology. Nothing with technology. And, but I always really loved writing. And I thought, you know, journalism is a place to, you know, tell important stories. And, um, and yeah, I got the job of my dreams, which was to be a newspaper reporter. And what did you report on? Um, well, they have these programs for, you know, rookie reporters where they put you all over the place uh, in the newspaper. And I pretty much reported for the California section, which meant that it was local news. Metropolitan. Yeah. And, um, you know, but because I spoke Spanish, I was also on what... I called structural inequality beats. So I was writing about, you know, black and brown and immigrant people and, you know, the issues that affected them. I also covered um, uh, crime, uh, natural disasters and religion at one point. Um, you know, yeah, a little bit of everything. And well, it's a multicultural city. Yeah, it's a multicultural city. And, um, and I realized probably not much later than about a month into the job that it wasn't for you it wasn't for me and it was so (laughs) disorienting because during all of college all of my internships were journalism related because this is what I wanted to do and And it's interesting that during those internships you didn't come to that conclusion no yeah there was something where I was just like oh this is just like my internship it's not bigger and better it is just exactly like that And it didn't matter if I had all of a sudden, you know, like a business card that said I was a staff writer as opposed to like an email that said intern. Right. Yeah, it was just the same thing. And and yeah, I just remember one day interviewing the incoming new chief of the LAPD, which is a pretty big story, you know, for this community and just feeling like. You don't, don't care. I don't care. <laughs> you know, like I should care, but I don't care. And I remember also just feeling I was working at the LA Times at a time when there was just a lot of layoffs. And I remember thinking like, of course they're hiring us young reporters. They can pay us half of what, you know, these seasoned reporters make and we'll work twice as hard because we're so hungry and right. we're not burnt out yet and everything. And it was just, there were these layoffs and buyouts, um, and also, I remember I would, you know, bust my butt to get a story, and it just sometimes it wouldn't even make it into the paper for a few days. And I'm like, why? Like, what's going on? And it would definitely never make it online. And as someone who never picked picked up the paper myself, and right, this was in 2007 and 2008. Mm-hmm. I was already reading everything online. The LA Times had a website. But it wasn't really there yet. Right. Nobody was really there yet. Nobody honestly. was there yet. But it, you knew if you could see the future, you knew it was going there. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have to look that far. I think no, anyone you didn't my because age. of your age and, you know, you, you, you're smart, you got it. It was amazing how many people couldn't look that far. Yeah. So. And I remember being like, why am I trying so hard to get this done 
at speed and at quality. And then the only people who see it, so sometimes it would actually be in the newspaper, but not on the website for a few days. And I was just like, no one's buying your newspaper, (laughs) you know, their physical paper. I don't know. I just felt like on the one hand, I wasn't super engaged with the content, even though I knew it was important. I would remember being in these like uh, city meetings about, I don't know, I think there was some big, you know, trouble that is important and that as a woman I think is important, but something about, you know, these city workers not having breastfeeding rooms. And I was just like, I just, one, didn't really feel part of this community, right? I was just, I just inserted myself into LA and all of a sudden I was writing about these, all these civic issues. Um, And two, nobody's reading it anyway. Right. So what was your big aha? You're like, okay, I'm out. It's been a month. I need to get out of here. This isn't for me. And so what what did you end up doing? So my best friend from high school, we didn't go to college together, but we're very close all throughout college. She had moved to San Francisco, and I went to visit her one weekend. I drove up uh, in my little Prius, <laughs> and I'd never driven so many hours at once. It is far. Yeah, it really is far, uh, and I did it so much for a while. Uh, and I visited her, and I just felt like, wow, like things are really happening here in a way that feels like it's very forward-facing. Yeah, instead of like stuck in – yeah, I mean, and just in, in what already started to feel like the dark ages of newspaper reporting. Or, you know, and I, and I will say, I think the LA Times and the New York Times and all these newspapers have really evolved since they then. They have certainly woken but up. But it was in this very, very awkward phase mm-hmm. when I was there. Um, and I just remember feeling like I kind of wanted to do something instead of write, a people, write about people doing something. And it's a very, you know, like... Uh, probably a somewhat narcissistic thought to have at age, you know, 21 or 22, which is just like, sometimes I thought my ideas were more interesting than those of the people I was reporting on or interviewing, you know, but that's not what you're hired to do. No, you're not hired to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you're not hired to share your own ideas. You're hired to ask other people what their opinions are, you know, and, um, and yeah, you know, I, I, I started to feel that, you know, objectivity was not a real thing anyway. And it felt a little dishonest because you were always, yeah, you pull a bunch of different ideas, but you have like a narrative anyway. And I think that journalism has evolved where uh, transparency is the new objectivity, at least in the most honest, you know. I hope so. Journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, yeah, so I was having these ideas that were like not really well received, you know, or really well understood in the newsroom at the LA Times. And, and did, you, did you feel like, oh, San Francisco is a place where, where I want to go? Yeah, it was mostly, to be honest, because it just felt like it wasn't that job. It was the energy. You know, it was the energy. And I had a bunch of friends there all doing really different things, teachers, you know, grad school, yes, tech jobs. And on a lark, I interviewed for a job I found on Craigslist and I ended up getting a job at a startup. Um, as a, I started, I was hired as a project manager slash community manager for this, these niche groups of websites that were eventually acquired by Monster. Mm-hmm. I remember Monster. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. bizarre. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you know, and, and I didn't love that job. In fact, you know, I just didn't care about the product that much, but I learned so much. And to this day, there are still some best practices around community growth or engagement and marketing and just, you know, um, uh, development. Those those early jobs make such a difference. I mean, even though whatever they may be, they really do in many ways, I've always believed connect dots to later in life. You were like, that was 
awful <laughs> or that was great, uh-huh. you know, and, and more than likely most of it is like, I do not want to operate like that when I run my own company. Yeah. No, I have learned, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about it, but I feel like I've learned more than anything from not just my own failures, but the failures I've observed or been a part of or, Completely. you know, and whatnot. But yeah, so, you know, but what I liked about it though was, yeah, there was a better energy in the city in San Francisco at that time. Uh, it's very different from San Francisco today, but at that time it was just a lot of young people. It was really affordable. It was really experimental. Um, I've been to so many parties where I can't believe I didn't die in like a, you know, artistic co-op, you know, fire (laughs) because it was just, you know, fire hazards all around, but it was just so exciting. And, um, and and how long did you hang out there? So I was in San Francisco for, I believe maybe about two and a half years. And so I had that job. I was acquired. Then I actually took what I learned from being in that startup and a little bit of money that I had saved from that experience. And I did consult digital consulting for nonprofits, which really brought me back to the stuff I really cared about, mm-hmm. but in a way that applied these practical skills that people in nonprofits just didn't have at the time. Still don't. Yes. <laughs> yeah, in some cases that's true. Um, and then And then the recession hit. And then all of a sudden, these people who were paying for me to help them do stuff around immigration rights and, you know, education. Ran out of cash. Ran out of cash. And so I actually, amazingly, uh, you know, one of of my clients was like, well, we can offer you a job, but we can't pay you a consulting gig anymore. So all of a sudden, I'm making a, you know, a nonprofit salary which is interesting. And I was writing again, if you can believe it, uh, for Alternate, which is a progressive publication. And that was interesting for me because I was really writing with a, for a cause. And there was, in that case, truly Because you still like to write. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it only took about six months before I was laid off because they couldn't afford to keep me anymore. So I was pretty, you know, so yeah, so I ended up having what turned out to be about three months of uh, not knowing what I was going to do with my life. And at the time, it's hard to remember now, but basically almost everyone I knew had lost their job and in our age group. It was a crazy time in San It was Francisco. a crazy time. It was a crazy time here too. Yeah. I mean, it was a crazy time across the country. Yeah. You know, it's just like people that graduated, people that tried to start a business. It was like when anyone says, and then it was 2009. And you're like, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly when all of this was happening. Exactly. So this was, yeah, 2009, 2010. And uh, so I had three months and I interviewed at all these places. I remember, yeah, at startups everywhere. And I would get some offers, but it just felt like not so great. Um, and then- We had a lot of experiences- Boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. So that you sort of had enough, you know, in your gut of like, this, none of these make sense. Right. <laughs> and, and then, you know, I, and, and during those three months, I started therapy for the first time in my life. And then I, I realized I was so attached to San Francisco. But what I learned through, through that wonderful therapist is that I was less attached actually to the city. Um, I was attached to who I had become in that city. And once I realized that that I got to take with me everywhere, I started to look at jobs in other places. Interesting. And, and I mean, I'm a huge, 
huge fan of therapy. Mm-hmm. I oh. think that it is <laughs> – Definitely. It can be game-changing if you are willing to change your game. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, talk about therapy. I just had a two-hour session today. Mm-hmm. She very graciously had time for me to babble on forever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I realized like at first I, I was so limited to looking in San Francisco, but I kept not finding jobs I loved, and I kept interviewing just for basically anything I could get in, you know, an interview right. around. And I remember being – oh my gosh, so silly to think about now, but – you know, inter- since I was interviewing for pretty much anything anyone like you know recommended me for, I went. And I interviewed for a job in uh, like internationalization at Twitter. So that was basically a fancy sounding name for like translating everything, you know, because I speak four languages. So this was useful. And they had a very organized interviewing process. I met a lot of people. And then at the end, Biz Stone, who's one of the I founders, comes yes. in. He, I guess, one of the founders interviewed everybody. And well, it, it was small enough at that point. Right. And, you know, I I'm didn't, sure that doesn't happen anymore. No, yeah, <laughs> totally. And I didn't get the job. And I knew why. It's because, like, I was obviously not excited about it. And I was obviously capable of much more than in, than translating things. And that comes out in an interview. You start asking, well, could I do this? I had these ideas around that. And she's like, that's not the job. You know, now as someone who interviews, I know how to watch out for those things. Right. But when you're young, you're like, well, I want to show them everything I'm capable of. But then that also means you're probably not going to be that happy at the, in that position. Thank goodness they did not offer me that job because that was right when I was starting to think, wait, I've turned down enough jobs. I still don't have one. My savings are running out, you know. I got to do something with I got to do life. something. And then, yeah, fortunately, I ended up, getting a couple job offers. And the one I took was uh, a real mix of everything that I'd done before, which was to be the first um, to report to the uh, CRO and on the you know business side of the, of the pre-acquisition Huffington Post at the time. So it was how to monetize and make money. And that was really interesting for me because I had worked at two uh, journalist, right. journalistic you know, entities that had no business model, no sustainable business model. And that was and so and so I came to New York for that. It was an amazing opportunity. I mean, Huffington Post then was quite yeah, interesting. It's hard to place. remember it now. I mean, because, it was yeah. it was amazing. I mean, we can go forward to like the Buzzfeeds or right. the Voxes yeah. um, that have yet. We'll see where they right, end up. Yes. I mean, some people believe they'll be big donuts. Um, yes, I think particularly Buzzfeed. But regardless, mm. you know that Huffington Post was like a brand new media business that yes. was. And getting all these people to write for nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of genius. Yeah, it was genius at the time. And it's hard to remember that it was genius today because it just seems like, yeah, like your grandmother's BuzzFeed. Completely. Um, but no, it was dynamic. It was exciting. New York had a lot more energy then. Um, well, it was just starting to take off. Yeah. And, and then AOL acquired us six months after I started there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no, I moved to New York to work for AOL. <laughs> you know, I was like, what? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I spent a, a rough year, I think, uh, post-acquisition. I didn't even really have a, a boss there. You know, I, I got involved in things that were technically out of my scope of work, but I had no scope anymore. It was a little all over the place. And... Um, and then I remember I went to Japan for two weeks by myself in the middle of winter, which is a really interesting experience because um, traveling it's is cold there. It's cold. And it's also, really cold there in winter. I mean, really it's cold. It's really cold. Mm. It's really, really cold. And also traveling as a single woman anywhere is kind of a bizarre experience. I'm sure it is. Yeah. But 
but uh, Japan, I picked Japan in particular because I thought it would be really safe to travel in. Because you have to think that way, sadly, as a woman, you know, like uh, there's a lot of other places I might have gone instead, but this was a place I felt would be totally safe. Um, And I assume it was. Anyway, it totally was. It was so so clean. I've never seen a cleaner bathroom than the one in a 7-Eleven in in Japan. No, it was wonderful. But I also just realized just how upset I was at just the fact that I was in, I felt like I was going nowhere career-wise. And at this point, I guess I was probably, uh, I don't know, maybe like 26 or something. And yeah, just, you know, what, what my youngest brother now, who's about that age, is calling his quarter-life crisis, you know? Well, it is. Because, you know, the, it, I think what's interesting about the 20s in this generation, like right now, is that you have these 20s to really figure out what it is that rocks your boat. And there's some that know exactly they're going to work somewhere for two years, somewhere else for two years, mm-hmm. and they are very, you know, driven in terms of what they want to see. They're not sure where they're going, but they're going somewhere. Right. And then there's a lot who are, like, bouncing all over the place figuring it out. And that is not something you could do so easily 20 years ago. Yep. No, absolutely. I remember the first time I quit a job when I – when I left, um, when I was thinking of leaving the LA Times, my parents were so concerned because they heard me wanting to get this kind of job for so long. And they're like, are you sure? I remember even when I went and resigned, um, the you know the, the HR person was like, do you want to take a sabbatical? And I was like thinking in my head, that's so hilarious. I've only been here for eight months. What do you mean a sabbatical? Like no one could believe it. And look, to be honest, there were four of us that started the same day. Uh, that fall of 2007, and they, I believe, are all still in journalism. That's interesting. I mean, I remember when I quit my first job, and it was it was hard, Yeah, you know? But then once I quit that first job, I could quit a million jobs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it was like, I was just like, oh my God, I'm quitting this job that I have been here for like almost four years, and, you know, it, it was my first thing, and, and then I, boom, I had, a, I had a job a year in the next yeah. couple of years. And I didn't feel, because I knew I'd land up on my feet. Yeah. And that's what I learned. And, you know, I think that I learned something that's been really helpful for me uh, as a CEO is the fact that, you know, it was hard growing up. We moved around a lot. So I spent half my life in Brazil, but that that's a very simple way of saying also that we moved around a lot in between even. It was just two years here, one year there, three years there. It makes I, an impact. It makes an impact. But it made me very resilient and like really like lean into change. You know, it's you just, like change. yeah, I like change. It keeps things exciting. Um, yeah. I mean, actually go is the job I've had the longest. It's been six and a half years by a lot, but by it's probably, yours, but it's mine, which is a big difference. Yes. And change is an interesting thought about change. So, you know, Fred, my husband, mm-hmm. he moved every year, um, until he was 13 years right. old, definitely made an impact. Yeah. Um, we moved a lot with our children in the New York area, mm-hmm. but, you know, from house to neighborhood to sure. places. Um, I moved when I was a kid a couple of times, and mm-hmm. I do think there's something about that resilience and um, and how you look at things differently. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and we love change. I mean, mm-hmm. change is like, we're like, we'll change one way, and then we're like, if that doesn't work, we'll change somewhere else. Like, yeah. doesn't phase either of yeah. us. And I think that there is something to be no, said about that's that. that's very helpful. And I will say, I think people who grew up the way I did, we tend to be doing really interesting, unusual stuff. You know, if I had just grown up 
where my cousins have grown up either just, just in Israel or just in Guatemala or whatnot. I or mean, just in North Dakota. Or South Dakota. Well, South to be Dakota. fair, we had, no, we had no family there. That was just us for like, or just my parents for like a year or two. Um, and we've never been back. I've literally never been back. It's always on my like, that's something we should do. But sadly, it's like when I think of other things to do with the free time that I have. <laughs> that is just, not going. Yeah. But someday I hope to make it there. Um, so how did Gotenna come to you? Yeah. So, Which is a very technology-focused yeah. business. Yeah, so then I was at the Huffington Post for a while, but, you know, not very inspired by AOL, <laughs> uh, you know, if I'm totally frank. And, and then <laughs> it I, looks like a lot of the consumers weren't either. <laughs> yeah, and and I got executive recruited, which was kind of exciting, you know, and I was executive recruited to be the head of growth at a at that point, just raised their Series A little startup. And, um, and I took it, but I took it for some of the right reasons. I really just wanted to not be part of this big behemoth. I liked the startup vibe more. So this was my third startup by then. Um, but I remember, you know, all of a sudden I was making so much more money than I had made before. You know, I was 26 and I felt so rich, you know, and on paper, everything should have been so great, but it wasn't, I wasn't excited about this product. I, you know, yeah, it just wasn't me. You know, I really like to work on things that feel like they are additive to society and not just solving, say, a tech problem for yeah. tech's sake. You have to drink the Kool-Aid. Yes. You really do. Right. Or it's very hard to sell it or get excited about getting out of bed every morning. Yeah. And, you know, I also had a coworker there who wasn't my uh, boss but was more senior and um, who would, you know, just say all kinds of ageist and sexist things that, frankly, would be totally he, I'm sure even that person isn't saying that stuff today you know it's just like just fast fast forward you know like Completely like six years it's just inex, unacceptable um and I was just like I don't like it here and and then Hurricane Sandy hit and I remember the number one thing I felt during Hurricane Sandy was like I'm so glad I'm not at that job <laughs> you know and I was like well that's a really good sign that I feel that and that summer prior I'd been working with my friend um Ikram, who's one of the co-founders of uh, uh, Venmo, he and I were working on this app that we called Trip Tonight, and it was basically trying to use excess inventory for flights to and using your social graph to push things that you might otherwise not look for or do. But mm -hmm. you know, if it's a flight that's leaving in the next forty-eight or twenty-four hours or something, you might take it, and then you take care of also this excess inventory issue. So it was fun. So I was doing all the stuff on the side, and that's where I was getting my energy. And it was so interesting because I started taking all these meetings to potentially raise money for this project, and then I realized I was like, I can do this. I I could start a company. Like right. I don't need to just find the next thing, you know, that, that sounds decent to me. Like I could really create something. I'm obviously capable of it. I, I just, yeah, I just had that confidence all of a sudden. And, you know, trip tonight was Ikram's idea. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. And honestly, I think it was also ahead of its time. It might make more sense now, you know, where all this excess inventory stuff makes a lot more sense. Things like hotel tonight, et cetera. Totally. Um, but then hurricane Sandy hit, I realized I really – I don't just dislike my job. I hate it, and I don't even want to stay anymore. And, um, and where were you living? Sorry? Where were you living then? I was living in Williamsburg. Okay. Uh, in South Williamsburg, two blocks from the river. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, the river was basically on my doorstep. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why don't phones work? 
when we need them most. And the irony is I actually lost no cell service, no internet service, no power. I was fine. But when I walked over the Williamsburg Bridge into lower Manhattan, it was gone. It, I mean, it was, it was gone. gone. It was like Don DeLillo, like a Whoa. post-apocalyptic madness. 9-11 too. Right? You know, you weren't here at 9-11, but yeah. getting through was almost, was, yeah. it was pretty impossible. And I just have, I remember these images of people crowding around a generator to charge their phones because without their phones, they were totally disconnected. Yeah. And I thought like, why is it that these phones that we consider kind of our gateway to all information and all useful things out and safety. in society and safety, why do they fail us when we need it most? And I started to think about an idea that my brother, Jay, had mentioned a month before, which is that he was like, I go to all these music festivals and raves and whatnot, and like my service never works. Like, what if we like built something for that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds interesting, but you know, it's not for me. But then I started to think about all the different ways in which communications infrastructure lets us down. It's crowded events. It's natural disasters. It's uh, when you're just geographically out of range of physical infrastructure that supports that connectivity. Small towns. Small towns. That are not connected. Yeah, emerging markets where you just can't pay to get Everywhere. I mean, there's an area that we drive through once in a while, and it's this 10-minute strip. Mm -hmm. There's no service. Mm -hmm. And I always think to myself, what if you have a car accident? Mm-hmm. What if your tire goes flat? What if, what if, what if, what if? Mm-hmm. I've been on calls where they've dropped off. Mm-hmm. It's like, why in the New York area, you know, even this corner around here on Bethune Street, mm-hmm. you always drop off? Mm-hmm. It's like, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's dangerous, you know, even though I grew up with nobody had a phone. Mm-hmm. But now we all do, and once you have technology, you can't give technology back. Correct. And so, so yeah, so then I started to think, you know, how does communications infrastructure work? Why does it fail? Why isn't there an, you know, quote-unquote app for that to fix that problem that at best is an inconvenience, at worst could be life-endangering, right? And I started to think about what it might look like to build something diametrically opposed to the communications infrastructure we have. What if it was, instead of being top-down centralized, it was bottom-up and decentralized? Well, bottom-up works. <laughs> top-down does not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what if we could unlock our phone's ability to create peer-to-peer communication regardless of what's happening to centralized communication? What would that take? And, you know, I called my brother back and I was like, hey, that idea, maybe that's actually rather interesting. And I started diligencing it. And, you know, that week after Sandy, I also had a conversation with my boss at that company who, you know, I wasn't surprised, knew I wasn't happy, <laughs> was as a result probably not that happy with, you know, what was going on, you know, with with my attention to detail and my commitment, you know, and we agreed to part ways. And, and then I had in front of me, you know, open space. And I had some savings, which was critical. Such a privilege to have the ability to like well, focus yeah. full time. Well, it's, it's the critical for both. I mean, I've had this conversation with people that have already sold their companies mm-hmm. and they're so concerned about what's next. Yeah. But if you don't give yourself space, right. you can never figure out but that. But it's a privilege to give yourself space. It is a tremendous privilege. Yeah, because I graduated not only with no uh, debt, because my parents paid for my school, uh, but I had jobs that paid increasingly better. And, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't paying off debt. So I had a little bit of money, not a lot, but I had enough where I was like, I don't need to rush to a next job. Right. And. Is a gift. Yeah. A huge gift, huge privilege. And, 
And I just started like asking a lot of questions. What would it take to have your phone create a connection directly with another phone? What would it take to create not just a phone, peer to, uh, phone connection peer-to-peer, but peer-to-peer-to-peer-to-peer? As it turns out, it was going to be really hard, but I kept talking to people at MIT Media Lab, at, at AT&T and Bell Labs, and I kept asking, does something like this exist? And the answer was no. Could it exist? And the answer kept being yes. So it became immediately clear to me that this was either a really dumb idea that a lot of people had already considered and decided not to do for very good reasons. Or an incredible opportunity. Correct. (laughs) That everybody was missing. So, you know, I very quickly learned that uh, there was never going to be a quote unquote app for that. We were going to have to develop hardware because your phone does not have the radio the radio system inside of it to enable this peer-to-peer connectivity doesn't mean it can't. It just means they don't. Your phones are purposefully locked down from your ability to create connectivity because phone manufacturers do business with cell and ISP providers, right. and ISPs, um, cell carriers and ISPs. Enterprise. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so, so I thought, okay, um, let's see if we can do this because it seems like it can be done and it hasn't been done. Uh, and so, yeah, it might be really stupid, but let's see. And so... And did your brother join this band? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it was his original idea. Um, he was, you know, he's three years younger than me, and he was in his first job in Philadelphia um, at the time. And, you know, I worked on it full time. We talked a lot on the phone. Uh, you know, this all, ha- you know, Sandy happened around Halloween 2012. By November and December, we had, like, rough sketches how we think it could work. By January or February, I believe, I found somebody to build a prototype for us. Um, his name is Raf. He's still our first employee. Amazing. And he's so he's been with us really from the very beginning. And by March, we had a family vacation to the Dominican Republic, I believe. And we had first working prototypes. We had these these little boxes. They were in these little Muji boxes with like, you know, all this um, electronic all, gear. Yeah, all electronic gear inside of it. All, you know, there's this board and this huge antenna and actually it connected to your phone via the audio cable, which thank God we moved away from the audio cable given there are no audio jacks on phones yes. anymore, but that's how it started. And we were on a beach. I remember my dad, my two brothers, me, and we were just seeing how far it went. It went like over a mile. That's amazing. Yeah. And I was like, wow, look, we're doing it. That really works. Yeah. And well, so- it's like the beginnings when we used to crawl through walls to wire things. Yeah. No one does that anymore. Right. So, you know, once we had a working prototype, we're like, well, this is a thing. It works. It, you know, has a lot of, like, a long, long, long way to go, but we should do this. And so the second I got back from the Dominican Republic, I incorporated Gotenna Inc. as a company. I hired uh, Raf as our full-time, first full-time employee. And how did you come up with the name? Um, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. I remember my brother and I were talking about a lot of things. And then I think that we had liked the idea of Tenna. Well, it makes sense because little antennas yeah. that could be put up to but create the, mesh networks. Correct. <laughs> but Tenna, I think, was not available as a URL. So I was like, well, if we just did like Go Tenna, like get it, Go mm. Tenna. And then I, it became clear to me that Go Tenna was actually a better name right. <laughs> for the company as a whole. So that's where it came from. And um, and yeah, and so we had so all of a sudden Gotenna Inc. was a company with uh, two full time employees, one of whom was getting paid, uh, not me. Uh, but you know we kept going, and uh, you know, we raised a seed round after being bootstrapped for a year. And then you know my brother quit his job and moved from Philadelphia, and then we were about five people for the longest time. And yeah, it, you know it went from there, and it took us, gosh, you know like. We had our first working prototype in March 2013, and I believe we did our uh, first public pre-order of our first generation consumer product 
in July 2014. Amazing. Uh, and we didn't ship until about a year after that in 2015, that product. So, you know, there was a long way ahead of us, but we made it happen. We had a second generation consumer product that meshed. So the first one didn't mesh. So it was just peer to peer, but this one fulfilled that like peer to peer to peer to peer idea of turning density into capacity. Uh, and we shipped that in late 2017. And last year we shipped a full product suite you know, various hardware products, various software products uh, for the public sector. And now our technology literally saves lives. You know, FEMA uses it. The DOD uses it. It's used in 49 countries by people who they don't just need connectivity. They need connectivity in a way that keeps not just them safe, but the rest of us safe. Correct. So the difference between, say, a wildland firefighter or a search and rescue operator, being able to be contextually aware of what's happening with their team, having a lifeline back, you know, to central command, it's the difference between actually life or death. It's really high stakes. And so if we can get those people to do their job better by remaining connected to one another, they can keep us safer. Right. Next generation walkie-talkie. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot of uh, radio systems that these uh, that these markets use, but they are 20 to 40 times more expensive than our system. Of course, because you're using your phone. Right. And, you know, that's part of it. And, and they're much harder to use, too. So there's a lot of different barriers to entry. And there just really hasn't been a fundamental rethinking of what tactical communication should yeah. be like. Well, they're clunky old systems, yeah. you know, that are not meant to be seamlessly beautiful and easy. Correct. And so I think that, you know, we brought basically this consumer sensibility. We had these products that we'd, you know, already two generation of consumer products that we were selling at REI and Amazon, we still sell there. Um, but in doing so, we had a lot of government customers all of a sudden using the product. And so we were able to bring that, yeah, that customer, that consumer intuitive, you know, focus, mm-hmm. that like delightfulness that people always talk about in consumer businesses, but you don't talk about as a defense or public safety contractor right. when you're developing, you know, solutions for that market. And we kind of combine the best of both worlds and, um, you know, the consumer business is still, I think, really exciting and interesting. It's been used, you know, by volunteers to connect nine municipalities with no connectivity to Hurricane Maria for nine months after. You know, it's done really impactful things. People use it, Burning Man, Coachella, hiking, Amazing. you know, everything. But, um, but it's, you know, I will say it's much harder to build a consumer business than it is an enterprise business, 100%. especially for us, because our consumer product is used by people in certain occasions, whereas our enterprise it's business- It's used all the time. Every day. Right. But you've been able to do both, which is 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 rare. Yeah, it's rare. But also, I should, I, I should say, like we are pretty much entirely focused on the enterprise opportunity right now, uh, because it's really hard as a company. We're you know just barely almost 50 people to- It's really hard to- it's expensive to have two different teams. Yeah, to focus on different things. It's so completely. we're lucky that our technology is pretty modular. I mean, the Gotenna Mesh consumer product is a version of the Gotenna Pro product, mm-hmm. you know? So it shares a lot of the same hardware, a lot of the same code base and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, the hockey stick growth is on the enterprise side. And my vision for the company is that, you know, if we can really just tackle this amazing B2G, this you know, government, public sector opportunity, then, you know, B2B is next, you know, just any continuity of operations right. for, you know, utility companies, uh, agricultural outfits, et cetera. I mean, we have all, some of these customers already. It's just not where we're focused on yet. And we have this massive IoT opportunity. So if you believe 
in, in a future where billions of connected things need to be connected all the time. I do. Yes. Of course I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you know, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's pretty much a given at this point. It's a given. We need to find scalable ways to connect all these things to each other. And Always. so what we're trying to build is basically this programmable mobile infrastructure that connects not just people to people, but people to machines, machines to machines in a really low-cost, low-power, easy way. And as a result, you can imagine having – you know, billions of Gotenna, you know, mesh connected things and people um, because it'll be affordable, because it's long range, because, you know, it's easy to use, because it's easy to integrate into other things. And so, but we're starting by focusing on the fact that, you know, communications orthodoxy calls it the last mile, but we see this horizon of opportunity. It's the first mile. Yeah. Right. And and also, you know, like li- when lives and livelihoods are at risk for the lack of connectivity, it's you can't even really have a last mile anymore. No. So we want to be that like connective tissue for all other systems. Right. We're not going to replace what cell networks and ISPs do for you. They do something very different. They do high bandwidth global coverage, right? That's how you get Netflix. That's how you can screen, you know, stream right. the news, right? But if you don't have Go10, you won't be able to get it. Right. Well, well, it's just also Possibly. there's an essential connectivity layer that is just the ability to send, you know, even just bursty data like email, texts, GPS data. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the stuff that if, if you had to, if you gun to your head, you were told what is the most important thing your phone or your computer does, it's these things. It is. It's right? your, it has become our basic daily needs. Correct. It allows us to connect to everyone all the time, anywhere, any place. Correct. In small little increments. Um, you know, I, I the first thing that pops in my head is Twitter with 140 characters, <laughs> you know, although not 140 characters anymore, but the concept of, you know, I need to text someone, I need to get in touch with someone. Um, I need I to need say a, where whatever I am, it is, what's what going on, why I'm late, what's happening, what, fire sparked here, exactly. I mean, whatever it may be. So, so we're trying to create that, we're trying to create a really resilient, scalable, uh, alternative, you know, almost like parallel communications network that always is up even when all their systems fail, and that moreover can connect other systems even when they're functional. So when you went out into the world as a woman in uh, going out and raising this kind of capital, and something that the reality is you didn't have any education in the tech world whatsoever. You were a writer. You were a foreign, you know, into, you know, possibly government things. Um, what, did you find it frustrating? <laughs> yeah. I mean, my uh, fundraising experience, uh, go, you know, I think ranges from – Bizarre to appalling. Um, well, most women feel so scarred by fundraising, they never want to do it again. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think um, the first time I raised money, the seed round, um, I still don't know. And sometimes I need to take people out for coffee and ask them, like, what, what did you see? Because, yeah, I had a working prototype. But I think at that time, they're really betting on you. Like, is this person? It's all about betting on you. And particularly yeah. at the time when you did it. Mm-hmm. So as an angel investor, I mm-hmm. can just tell you, I mean, now I'd want to see so much more. Mm-hmm. But that was a time where, you know, you're like, God, this makes so much sense. Why isn't someone doing this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because this is where we're going. Right. And this person is capable of doing it. Yeah. So, so you know, the, I, yeah, I mean, our, our seed round, yeah, I was a first-time founder. I was not a technical founder for a very technical company. Um, but that's why I didn't go out and even talk to anybody and try to work in prototype because I know, I know knew nobody would, you know, bet on me Well, otherwise. you knew that. I mean, yeah. a lot of people, they get their foot into the door of these VCs or, you know, early-stage companies. 
to invest in them and they're never getting their foot in right. the door again. Totally. And it's a huge mistake. I mean, yeah. timing is very important. So, so I think I got that right. Um, but you know, like we had four leads, you know, nobody wanted to take a big chunk. It was a big bet, you know, but I'm very grateful. But yeah, I mean, our cap table in the seed round was absurd. It was a ton of people. I took That's checks as small is. as $10,000 yeah. because, but yeah, so we raised $1.8 million. Um, and that was okay. I think, I think that was not, a really scarring experience other than it took forever and I just really had to scrounge for each dollar. It always takes forever. People should raise less money than mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. now although if you can raise money you should. Mm-hmm. I mean I asked for someone's cap table the other day because I wanted to see what was going on because they've gone through a down round and they had to pivot and I mean she's amazing mm-hmm. and I'm thinking oh my god there are so many people on this cap table. How do you clean this mess up? Yeah so we've, we've got to clean it from there on out. Um, my series A uh, I got one term sheet, but it was at a very flush time in VC. And so it was a great term sheet. And I just took it and ran for the hills, honestly, um, because, yeah, we did our seed in late 2013 or actually really throughout 2013. I basically raised for half the year. I had a term sheet early on, but I had to fill around over the next six months. Right. Which is always uh, fun. Yeah. Um, and then the series A, I believe might've been, you know, early 2015 or sometime or sometime in 2015. And that was a time where, you know, just th- there was a lot of options. So I took a great term sheet and I ran. Um, the next time I raised, which was, we called it Series B, but now people would have probably advised me to call it Series A1. <laughs> uh, it, 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 these are all very questionable terms. Yes. <laughs> um, it, was, it ended up being the same size as our Series A. So it was two $7.5 million rounds. And th- this was the round that eventually USV Albert Wenger led. But, um, you know, that was really hard because we still had a long way to go to get to where the A should have taken us because guess what? Building this technology no one's ever built before. It's, it's a lot not harder than you think. It's it's a lot harder than I thought, but that's also part of why I think people hadn't done it before. It's right. just so hard. Right. And um and I was very lucky that I had connected with Albert. I don't know if it was during when I was like raising the A and he passed because, you know, he was like, well, but do you mesh? And we're like, not yet, but the next generation will. And he's like, we'll come back when you mesh. It might've been during the A. Um, but fortunately, like we'd kept in touch and he'd seen all this progress. And, and so then, you know, I really had built a well, rapport. Well, that was key. A lot of people yeah. don't keep in touch. Mm-hmm. And then they email you two years <laughs> later and they're like, hey. And it's just like, that was a big mistake. Yeah. You know, show what you're doing. Totally. Show how you're growing. Yeah. And so I think that, so, you know, it was two things. One, yeah, I kept in touch often enough where he knew kind of what was going on. But two, I did what I said I was going to do. Right. You know, like. You executed. Yeah. You know, like I. You yeah. became a mesh network. Yeah. We, be- we became the first ever mobile mesh network that wasn't just for the military. Right. You know, like this is was pretty game-changing. And uh, we hadn't released it publicly yet, but by the time he was doing his diligence, he was able to demo it and see that it worked, even though it was kind of buggy, you know? Right. Like, and so, yeah. That was the key. That was the key. And so, you know, then the the last two years of, you know, the, the Series B runway have been massive because we not only released the Gotenna Mesh product, which is our our second generation consumer product, first generation meshing product, mm-hmm. but we also developed the entirety of this Gotenna Pro product line and released it last year. And this is the, you know, we've always made several million dollars a year on the consumer product, but it's not a massive growth business. Again, people don't use it every day. It's hard right. to explain. It requires a lot of education. But the second we launched the Gotenna Pro product, June last year, so it's been a year, I mean, it's just like multi-million dollar contracts. 
you know, are in the pipeline all the time. We've closed, we've closed quite a bit. We expect to, you know, we, we did probably three times revenue last year and we expect to do somewhere between two to three times revenue this year Amazing. from that, which is awesome. So what are the stats you want to share with us? Yeah. So yeah. So fundraising. So I just, uh, closed our series C earlier this year. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And that was a really, really rough experience. It's a very different – it's a different raise. I don't think everyone really understands how different each raise is. You know, the first one, you're like selling you and you're selling your dream, even though you have something that's like funky or kind of works or, you know, does work. And then the second one, you know, it's not as much diligence. And the, sec- the next one is like serious deep dive diligence. And then the third one, you could talk to these people six to nine months before they decide to do it. Yeah, so – so, you know, like I'd had bad experiences with VC before. When I was raising the Series B that USV ultimately led, I met a VC who, no joke, told me in, in his attempt to show how how open-minded and like, you know, em- empathic he was, he said, he's like, oh, you know, you just don't look like you could be running this kind of company. You know, you don't look like an enterprise CEO. You don't look like Mark Benioff. And I remember thinking, what am well, I supposed to look like? Well, I just, I was just like, should I just be polite? And swallow that, or should I say something? And I realized I was like, I'm not. You're not going to invest in me because this is what you're, this is how you think, right? And two, I don't want to work with you. So that is the key thing. And and did you say something? Yeah. So Good I said I, I was just like, why? Because I'm not a middle aged, overweight white man. And he's like, uh, uh, uh. and then to try to save himself, he said, you know, I have some female VCs you can talk to. I think they'll understand you. I was oh like, oh my god. Yeah. And I was like, oh, because only female VCs could understand me. Right. I mean, it was just horrible, but you know what? Good for you. And this is one thing I've talked to him about this all the time, which is if you go into someone's office and they are so inappropriate and we could list a hundred inappropriate things mm-hmm. is you don't want their money anyhow. Right. And you should say like, fuck you. And literally give a response like you did that pushes them back on their heels. Um, I had a woman literally pick up her her stuff and said, this meeting is over. Mm-hmm. And he was so like, you know, rattled. She, no, no, no. He's like, there's no way I'm taking your money. It's over. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like, you know, the thing is though, and we'll talk about this data later, but um, I don't have that many options. You know, like, I have been lucky. In some ways, I'm lucky that there are very few people who want to invest, forgetting my gender, but they that want to invest in companies that have hardware elements, oh, sure. that have like public sector for business sure. elements, but then add the gender thing. So in in some ways, like you I have a triple whammy. Yeah, I have a I have a smaller universe of VCs who are even going to take a meeting Completely. or take this seriously. Um, so you know, it's harder for me to really want to like truly burn bridges because there are just not that many options. And if I could self fund this, I would burn bridges all around anyone who's inappropriate. Right. But, you know, there is this part of it's just like, you know, I don't want to get a reputation, a reputation, you know, but I'm, I will also stand up for myself when right. I need to. It's a hard one. Yeah. And so, you know, what happened in the Series C was incredible to me because we'd grown so much. The technology was not just in third generation. It was like we'd already, you know, even released firmware updates that, you know, increased the capacity of our network so much. And, you know, we'd hired the chief scientist from Raytheon, one of the only people on the planet who even knows how to build mesh networks. I mean, the team was just incredible. The business was going so well. And and in this fundraise, which was, you know, late last year, I kept getting people who told me, it can't be done. That what I was describing, that we are 
already doing was impossible. And I couldn't help but think was, you just don't believe me. You just don't believe me. And or I couldn't- they're not doing their homework. Yeah, they're not doing the homework or you don't believe me. You've just made a decision that because so many other people, a lot of men too, failed, you know, 10 years ago in mesh networking that I can't possibly have actually done with where they fit, you know, succeeded where they failed. And I've often thought that, you know, women like Elizabeth Holmes and Jessica Reichman or Rickman, you know, from Ubiome, um, and Elizabeth Holmes, of course, from uh, Theranos, they have done an incredible disservice to women. They've in, done a disgusting service to women. To women in deep tech in particular. Very much Because so. now, like, yeah, th- these fraudsters are the only, like... They're great uh, at selling themselves. Right. They're great at selling themselves, and they're the only, you know, names that anyone off the top of their head can name of women who run yes. these deep tech companies. Who went into these deep tech companies with things they could not do and they weren't Correct. going to ever do. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, I had this technology already worked that Navy SEALs were using, their lives depend on it. FEMA's using it, their lives depend on it, and you're telling me it can't possibly work. Well, you know, there are a lot of VCs out there who read the paperwork and honestly don't go out and use the product. Yeah. And so they weren't they weren't trying out your product. Yeah, I mean it's also yeah, our product is a little harder to use cuz you have to like get out and use it. But, but still, yes, totally. If you're going to put that kind of money into a company, go out and use Trust the product. Trust me. No, I know. I know. You know, yeah. uh, all the people who have messed in the company have done that. Of course they have. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, I was getting a lot of that. I got a lot this time also about oh, this is just not a market we understand. You know, this doesn't fit our framework of, you know, I've invested in this co-working company or this fintech company or this, you know, direct-to-consumer e-commerce company. Like well, this- That I this, can understand. Yeah, this is a counterintuitive company and a counterintuitive market with a really blue sky mission. Like my goal is to be the connectivity uh, framework that connects everything all the time, mm-hmm. even when all their systems fail. We're the backup to the backup. We're right. the redundant, you know, we're the connecting your car to your home, everything in the future, satellites, everything. But it's a big, really, really a big idea. And I can't help but think that if I like, one, had the track record, of course, and maybe also look like Elon Musk, you would believe it more, <laughs> you know? A hundred percent. So it's a really big idea and a lot of people don't understand it. And there's a lot of moving pieces to it. It's really complicated. And when you say a lot of people don't understand it, I had two founders that pitched someone who I had already scolded about his behavior towards women. Mm-hmm. And they went and they he did it again. And he said, they said, you know what? I just don't think that he understands our business. Mm-hmm. And so that is this behavioral. Yeah. And look, I think it's okay if you're an investor, you don't want to invest in something you really, really, really don't understand. I totally get that. So in some ways, like maybe it's lucky that the universe of people that are even like really, you know, appropriate for me to truly dive in with. Good businesses are always going to find the right investor. Yeah. I firmly believe. I think that's true. And so, you know, we're, we're lucky to have, um, to have partnered Founders Fund led this round. Uh, they make big bets in deep tech ranging from SpaceX to, you know, now Gotenna. Yes. And they're not scared of hardware. They're not scared of public sector, you know, business being maybe one of the first adopting markets. And, um, and I'm really excited to work with them or, and have, and have been working with them. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so this has been awesome. That's great. Um, but my experience of fundraising this time around made me want to research what I feel like I've been anecdotally experiencing and see if I could actually put data behind it. So, so let's hear it. Let's yeah, hear your so, data. So let me let me pull it for you. So, so according to Crunchbase data, um, only and, and this is a number people know really well, right? Which is that like 
only 10 billion or 2.6% of the total 383 billion of venture dollars invested between 2014 and today have gone to female only led teams. People know that number. People always say it's 2%, right? Um, even though uh, female only led teams represent 4.92% of venture backed companies. So that's 44% less than their fair share. Right. Right. Um, but in female business categories, for, and which for the purpose of this analysis, you know, I'll just tell you all of them, are defined as companies on Crunchbase listed under lingerie, shoes, fashion, wedding, <laughs> beauty, cosmetics, flowers, jewelry, wellness, childcare, fertility, and home decor. Which, of course, those are not all you – know, I mean, men can like home decor. Men can care about wellness. 100%. But, you know, just, just, just as a baseline. Ven- venture capitalists are actually rather equitably investing – 22.39% of capital uh, funneled to FEMA-only led startups in these sectors, which comprise 20.74% of these companies. So what that means is if you're a female founder uh, in a female business category, you're, you're, a raise- better shot. Yeah, you're raising 110 cents to the dollar in this sense, right? So it's actually pretty equitable. Mm-hmm. And while most female-only led companies fall into this bucket of female categories, yes, they do. Um, the... Female-only led startups, which operate non-female-focused businesses, represent 4.1% of venture-backed companies, but receive only 1.88% of venture dollars, or 54% less than their fair share. And it's even worse when you get into um, in, when you get into deep tech. Oh, so, I'm sure. It so is I just deep pulled tech. this data, which is why I'm like I have my computer here. But so female-only led teams represent 1.2% of wireless companies. I would probably fall into that category. Yes. But get 0.3% of all the capital that are given to those companies, and that's 75% less than their share, fair share. So they get 25 cents on the dollar. Amazing. Uh, female-only led teams represent 1.8% of all robotics companies, but get 1% of their capital of that capital. So that's 45% less than their fair share, or 55 cents on the dollar. Female-only led teams represent 2.8% of all AI companies, but get 1.5% of the capital. So that's 47% less than their fair share, or 53 cents on the dollar. And female-only led teams represent 1.2% of all infrastructure companies. Gotenna could also fall into that category, but get 0.3% of all capital. That's 75% less than their fair share, or 25 cents on the dollar. So, you know, I feel like if venture capitalists want to invest more equitably, they need to not only invest in more women, but they need to invest in also different kinds of women. I completely agree. And, you know, given that 50%, if not more, of all engineering grads these days are women, we need to be stingling to women that they can succeed in, like, non-female categories. I totally agree. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Is uh, Years ago, someone made a comment, which is women should stop doing you know, female type businesses. I don't agree with that. I and think that's I anti woman. I think that's anti woman. I think it's anti woman. It's just like, well, then men should stop doing gaming companies. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all we all go to things that are voids in our lives. Everyone, that's what you build, or things that you feel comfortable with, that you feel great about, and you should be funded based on your business and your success. Yeah, and, th- and that's why I think it's good that if you know female-only led teams in these so-called female business categories represent twenty percent of those founders and get, which means that you know eighty percent of the founders, you know, uh, either mixed gender or male-only teams, are, you know, like are raising they, they're actually raising one hundred to ten cents to the dollar mm-hmm. of what these mixed or male things. That's equitable, right? right. That's great. But like, you know, given especially that deep tech companies tend to be more capitally intensive, the fact that it's harder for us to raise money is not, is ridiculous. But it's going to change. You're going to make a change. Yeah. I mean, we'll see, you know, I mean, it's funny. I I still feel like I have a long way to go in this business. I'm so excited about where we are and what's going to happen. You're doing your series C and you have a product that works. Mm -hmm. 
Elizabeth Holmes never had a product that worked. Mm-hmm. But anyway, thank you so much for coming on. This is <laughs> thank amazing. You. Thank you. And I yeah. love the I love the data. My thanks to Daniela for joining me on the podcast. And if you are as wowed by her as I am, I urge you to check out Gotenna, T-E-N-N-A dot com. We will be back next Monday with a brand new episode of Positively Gotham Gal. <laughs>